Hello, everyone, and welcome to this ESIP online conversation about competition technology and the new desire by policymakers to regulate big tech. My name is Frederick Eriksson, and I'm very pleased to welcome today Sam Bowman. Sam is the Director of Competition Policy at the International Center for Law and Economics, a research think tank in the United States, and he has long been a prolific writer on matters of competition and technology. Before joining the ICLE last year, he was a principal at Fingleton, a London-based regulatory competition advisory firm, where it advised corporate clients on competition and public policy issues and led industry reviews into open banking and open data in the energy market. Hello, Sam. I'm very glad to have you with me today. Good afternoon. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be here. So I was hoping we could start this conversation talking about the growing trend of regulating technology firms and the way they compete, especially the platform companies that offer customers an ecology of different technologies and services. We will come in a minute to what governments are doing or what they are planning to do to clip the wings of these companies. But I wanted us first to take the pulse of the thinking behind this trend and what motivates it. So in your view, Sam, why has it become so easy to put Facebook, Google, Amazon, and perhaps others in the political crosshair and take a shot at them? Well, um, I think it's really notable, and this will be clear to everybody, that we're seeing similar trends in Europe, in the UK, in the US, and even in China. Um, we, I won't go into China in too much detail because I, I'm not an expert, but even in China, there's been this big regulatory storm, as they call it there, um, where there have been antitrust probes into big Chinese tech companies. And I think that to a greater or lesser extent, the common factors between these in all of these different jurisdictions are something like a growing suspicion of corporate power, plus a sense that these very large companies and these very large digital companies in particular um, need to serve certain industrial policy roles. And I think both of these are supported to some extent by empirical claims. So I'm, I, th I think we should talk about those empirical claims because I'm skeptical of them, but they're not coming from nowhere. So when it comes to big tech, you know, we see antitrust, of course, being the main focus uh, among a lot of policymakers. But there are loads of other complaints about big tech as well. You know, Facebook's, the trouble that Facebook's gone into in the last few months hasn't been over Facebook being a monopoly per se or having market power per se. It's been over the product design decisions that Facebook has made and the um, worries that people have about what that does to mental health of users, um, you know, addictiveness of those platforms and so on. We also uh, see, and I, th I think this is not really a market power issue, although um, others will disagree, a concern that kind of old media is losing out and is sort of losing the profitability that it once had. And so news coverage is declining as a result. And hence, we get this sense that big tech companies should be paying uh, for links to um, old media companies. And also, um, particularly in the US, there's this idea that tech companies are distorting the political debate in a kind of direct way by um, interfering with the uh, voices that can be heard and promoting other points of view and downgrading other points of view. And then that gets into questions about platform liability and questions to do with um, what should the protections be for intermediaries that host speech online that until now have been almost completely shielded from the speech that they carry and from the content they carry. But all these questions don't just relate to antitrust and they don't just relate to you know, higher prices or necessarily higher concentration, although obviously all of them have to do with that in some way. 
And I think the easiest way of boiling all that down, if you like, is to the sense that there are some extremely powerful and extremely influential companies now that, that have grown very, very rapidly and a concern about the, the wider social and economic effects and, and indeed democratic effects of those. Yeah, all right. I think you're absolutely right to widen the scope here to look at different type of issues, uh, everything from mental health to, you know, issues that may or may not be connected to swaying the outcome of elections, but at least where you can you can have a discussion around these issues about what platforms are doing. And, you know, and when we see when we look at the specific pushes that are being made, it's often this idea that big tech companies gain a a really significant share in one market and then use that to both monopolize the rest of that market, maybe because they built up, you know, a really big network of users. um, That means that it's harder for other companies to get in, but then also use the power that they've got in that market to extend into other markets and sort of monopolize those markets as well. I, you know, I think, I think it's really important to remember that to some extent, these sorts of concerns are the same as they've always been. You know, Microsoft was in particular accused of this kind of behavior in the 1990s. Um, we don't really worry about web browsers being bundled with operating systems anymore. Uh, but at the time, that was considered to be a really, really concerning problem. And when we look at the, the most, I think, important group of people uh, intellectually, and now in terms of their actual influence over policy, the, the neo-Brandesians of whom um, Lena Kahn, who's now the chair of the FTC in America, is I think the most uh, prominent example. What they are doing is, and the clue is in the name, neo-Brandesians, is hearkening back to an older age of antitrust, where um, antitrust until the 1970s in the United States was not primarily about consumer welfare. It was not primarily about economic outcomes. It was about the idea that there is something fundamentally suspicious and dangerous about big, big companies, sometimes big conglomerates, but sometimes just big corporations of any kind, because they have a sort of harmful effect, not just on consumers by raising prices, which, which is now the, anti- the focus of antitrust, but also on the, the democratic process, also as a sort of concentration of power that they're able to somehow pervert the process. And you, and you can see this in um, Lena Khan's writing. You know, Lena, Lena Khan, uh, to quote, says, you know, economic power has to be seen as inextricably political. Power in industry is the power to steer outcomes. And there should be a positive division, sorry, I'm paraphrasing slightly, of how economic power should be organized, decentralized and dispersed, a recognition that forms of economic power are not inevitable and instead can be restructured. And that is, that is such a break, not just from you know, people like me who are relatively non-interventionist when it comes to antitrust, but also with people who until a few years ago have been the kind of mainstream other side, the mainstream pro-intervention side who, who had and who still, um, those people frame their objections to uh, big companies in particular cases in the form of these companies can raise prices, they can stifle innovation, and ultimately they can make consumers worse off. Now the critique is very different. It's to say that it's not actually the question. The question isn't really what the effect of these companies is on consumers or even on innovation. It's what they have on society as a whole. And it's their, it's what they see as a pernicious influence on the democratic process. And, you know, it, it, there, there are kind of interesting parallels with, obviously, the motivation is totally different between the Chinese and the European and the US concerns Whereas I think where I think each of these have different but kind of similar in some ways motivations, where in the US, it's this idea that 
we can measure the health of the market by the number of companies in it. And, and you know, there's a sort of an almost like yeomanry. Um, there's a sense in the in the kind of U.S. psyche, perhaps, that, you know, small landowning um, yeomen are the, the backbone of the U.S. republic. In, in Europe, I think that's less of a strong impetus, but I think there is a deep concern that all of these companies are American. Um, I really don't want to suggest that that's the, the main motivator. I think it's very oversimplistic to suggest that that's the main motivator, but I think that has to be part of the mix. And then in China, it's, it's obviously much more sinister, but the fundamental concern by the Chinese, Chinese Communist Party is that people like Jack Ma and organizations like Ant Financial really do have a huge amount of influence over um, how people think and over um, the way people act in, in China. And that's a direct threat to the authority of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, obviously, that's very sinister, whereas the first former two um, are totally understandable and, and come, from a, come from, I think, quite good motivations, even if I disagree. But in all of these cases, the fear is of, I think, a, a concentrated political power. And then maybe the focus on antitrust is it may be because that's the most powerful tool that we've got. Um, it may be that if we were designing or if these people were designing the rules from zero, antitrust wouldn't be the one that they would use or wouldn't be wouldn't look like what they, they would design. And, you know, when we when we turn to um, the policies that are being proposed later on, we'll see that, you know, they, they are indeed often proposing basically regulatory interventions. And I think in a way that's more honest. You know, I, I think in a way, it's, at least it's more clear that this is the outcome we want and we're going to regulate for that rather than claiming that, you know, competition law is the tool to get us towards that. Yeah, indeed. So if we follow that argument that you just laid out, Khan and from others around bigness or firm size, so even if we don't take sort of a neo-Brandesian approach to it, let's say we would take much more of a consumer harm-based approach to, to this issue and talk about it, what would your view be here? I mean, do, do we have issues of uh, competition problems in market right now that stem from the fact that some of these companies are very big, not just in terms of market valuation, but in their market reach. In a way, has firm size, has it become a problem for competition and innovation in technology markets? I think I'll answer that in two ways. The first is, um, I, I, I can't say definitively, and I think that the, the role of a competition authority is to be alert to those concerns and to investigate them and to use competition law and competition tools it has to um, correct them and, where necessary, to punish companies that have acted anti-competitively. But the second part of my answer is that I don't think that we can infer from bigness per se that there are problems. And I think that, that might be the first area where I really break with some people who have a much more interventionist attitude. The history of kind of modern antitrust is that until in the US, at least, until the 1970s, there is the dominant view was that market structure taught us a huge amount about the competition and the health of the market. Um, you know, even if we weren't per se concerned with uh, democracy and things like that, if you put those concerns to one side, the kind of structuralist view was that a, a market where you have 10 competitors that each have 10% of the market share each was sort of almost certainly going to be more competitive than a market where you have two competitors or one competitor and and therefore, you know, antitrust and competition policy was, if not straightforward, it was easy to measure the things that you needed to go after. And part of the antitrust revolution, partly driven by the Chicago School, but also driven by um, the Harvard School, you know, it's it's an error to um, think of this as purely a kind of Chicago product, was the the application of economics to these questions. And with it, the, the application of ideas that 
there are efficiency differences between companies for one thing. So if one company is more efficient than another company, we would want it to become larger because consumers, because it would be able to offer cheaper products, it may be more innovative, it may be better at planning for the future. And so, you know, it, it could take better gambles than its competitor. And it wouldn't be necessarily a problem for that company to grow larger than another. And it would probably be a good thing for it to be larger than another. But that's kind of the market process in action. And that, that's sort of what we want. But we also developed the kind of concept of contestability, whereby competition, we, we began to think and began to realize, doesn't just come from competitors within a market. It comes from competitors that might enter a market. So there's a constraint on even a monopolist from firms either in the future or firms that exist today that could move into a new market to to kind of grab part of the pie. So, you know, in the digital sphere, video streaming has become a huge, hugely contested market where, you know, just a few years ago, people were talking about the FANG companies where Netflix was considered to be one of these big monopolists along with Google and Amazon and so on. I think very few people would consider Netflix to have the same kind of position in video streaming that, say, Google has in, um, in online search. And all of these things centered around this sense that the way we measure the success of our policy or the, the goal that we're trying, the common goal that we're trying to work towards is consumer welfare. And, you know, you can, one can overstate the importance of the consumer welfare standard. It's sometimes a kind of slight totem. Uh, and, and I think that there are many more interesting questions that we should be uh, thinking of than just the consumer welfare standard. But it is worth knowing that there were cases prior to this, this period in the 1970s where courts decided against particular business practices um, and against mergers because they would lower prices, not in a predatory pricing way where you lower prices today in order to raise them in the future, but because they would undermine other competitors and because these lower prices would be really inconvenient for other, other competitors. And I, I think, thankfully, we're a really long way from that. Um, it, it is worth talking about some of the economic trends that that I think are debatable, but animate a lot of the concerns that people have. So the first one, as we've already talked about, is increasing concentration. And obviously, concentration has increased quite a lot in certain digital markets. Concentration in the search engine market is much higher now around Google than it was you know, when I was a small child but a nerd so i was really into the internet when i was like 10 years old and you know using lycos and alta vista and yahoo and, and so on but across the wider economy in the us it also is the case that general levels of concentration appear to be rising and this is a this is a really really important fact for many people who think that the antitrust laws have failed because from their point of view although concentration isn't they might they might not argue that concentration is bad per se Concentration makes it easier for businesses to collude. And, you know, going back to this sort of structuralist idea, it's easier for businesses to not cut prices when they only have two or three competitors. There's a sort of game theory that enters into it rather than the sort of perfectly competitive model where you just you just have so many competitors, there's nothing you can do but cut your prices. But what's interesting, and I think it's really, really worth noting this, is that on the local level in the United States, concentration has been falling. And the more local you look, when you go down to the zip code level, concentration has been falling even more. And so these two very divergent trends seem strange, but I think there's a pretty easy way of reconciling them, which is that national level chains, because of advances in logistics and because of advances in software and stuff like that, have been able to extend their way across the United States economy. And so even though that means that on a national level, you know, the, the targets and the Walmarts of this world are gaining more share of the supermarket industry, 
on a local level, towns that were previously only served by you know one retailer are now being served by two, or now have a now have a Walmart and a Target that they can drive to, and so now experience much more local competition. The second empirical claim is that markups, which is a measure of the dis- the difference between cost of producing something and the price of selling it, and so profitability, have been increasing over time. And this is a this is a really really important finding. But again, it's unclear whether we're measuring the right thing. For one thing, markups, it's an open question as to whether you should include fixed costs like the cost of software, the cost of R&D, the cost of management. And in an increasingly intangible world, those things matter more and more to the total cost of producing something. That's one really, really important question. And it looks as if when you include those things, the rise in markups disappears almost altogether. So it's not to say that that's the correct measure. It's not to say that the other measure is an incorrect measure where you just look at the cost of you know, producing one extra unit of a product. But there, it, it depends on what your view is of the wider economy. And the other fact that's interesting is that while markups have increased, prices haven't. So it could be that uh, what we're seeing is more productive companies making profit from their higher levels of productivity. Sure, in a, in a perfectly competitive model, those prices would immediately fall to the cost of production. So, you know, it's not to say that we, we have perfect competition. I don't think we ever do. But the, the story feels quite different if what we're looking at is prices staying the same or falling, but the cost of producing things falling even more. And so, so kind of profitability coming from efficiency. And so, I mean, there are, there are other points as well, uh, you know, income inequality, which I don't think we can, um, there, are, there are elements of income inequality that have to do with tech, for example, because people who work at tech companies earn enormous amounts compared to peers who don't work at tech companies. Um, but I think it's very difficult to argue that that's the whole story there. And then there are questions of wealth distribution. And, you know, that gets on to my other big bugbear, which is housing, uh, which we don't need to talk about now. But um, there is some fascinating work by Matthew Rogelney at um, Northwestern University that suggests that a lot of the rise, if not all of the rise in wealth inequality that uh, Piketty identified has been driven by housing rather than by, you know, shares owned by um, owned by people that, that other people don't have. But basically, those are what, I, what I'm not trying to rebut those, or I'm not trying to say that they're, they're not important, but I'm trying to say that a lot of the um, stylized facts that are very important to this debate become much more complicated and nuanced when we scrutinize them. And so to answer the question in an extremely long-winded and roundabout way, no, I don't think bigness per se is something we should be worried about, but I do think we should be alert to the, uh, the abuses that can come from, from any company having a, a big market share or any company having a really, really, really widely used product. All right. So a, a final question on what we're talking about now, which is the different sort of factors that are driving this trend towards more activity or more activism focused at big tech. My question here is about perhaps it's more relevant for Europe than it is for America, because as you said initially, there has been a shift a little bit in the thinking, at least among people in power right now when it comes to what competition policy should be for. So we have, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Linda Kahn coming into the Federal Trade Commission, and we have uh, people in the White House at the Department of Justice that tend to see things a little bit differently from the recent past when it comes to the purpose of um, of competition policy. We have also now people in Congress that are making more of a political case for, you know, breaking up big tech or for regulation in different ways. And uh, there seems to be people on both sides of the aisle that go in that direction too. So, for instance, we have a 
Jack Grassley and Amy Klobuchar that have uh, co-sponsored uh, a bill to regulate technology firms that looks a little bit like the Digital Markets Act in the European Union. Anyway, but my point here is basically to sort of sum the story up on the American side in the way that perhaps there is a superiority complex when it comes to competition policy in the sense that you describe a lot of power to this particular instrument and you think can achieve a lot of different political objectives by activating classic antitrust instruments in order to, to get there. In Europe, however, I wonder if we have an inferiority problem in the sense that we seem to be thinking that traditional competition policy cannot achieve the more strict competition objectives anymore. So the argument here is that we need to have regulation like the Digital Markets Act, Digital Services Act, and a lot of other things that are coming in because competition policy have proven to be toothless when it comes to dealing with specific problems that come up. And that can be everything from, you know, too aggressive, aggressive acquisition strategies to self-preferencing to t tying or other type of classic competition problems that we've dealt with in the past. So, What's, what do you think? What's the state of competition policy thinking in Europe? Do we have this inferiority problem here in the sense that we perhaps can't see that in most cases, competition problems have actually been able to resolve the issues where genuine competition problems have emerged? But so we perhaps don't need to go as far on, on regulation as they propose. Well, I mean, this comes back to um, the earlier question of to what extent are these actually competition problems? For example, a lot of the focus of both the Digital Markets Act and the bills that are being proposed in the United States is on, the, to use the European term, gatekeepers, right? It's digital platforms that have made themselves or have become so powerful and important within some market that lots of other businesses it is argued, are dependent on them, and that they have a kind of, almost they're a quasi-regulator of this market that they've created. Now, I would argue that from a competition point of view, what happens on that market is not really the concern. The, competi the competition we should care about is competition between the different marketplaces. You know, eBay's ability to compete with Amazon's marketplace or Walmart's ability to compete with Amazon the ability for those different, if we want to call them quasi-regulators, to compete with each other and offer different levels and degrees of regulation, I think is really important. And to the extent that any of those companies were engaging in behavior that contradicted that, that would be very bad. Um, to, in some of the lawsuits that are being brought, um, that is basically the claim. So the, the claim, and we don't need to go into too much detail, but one of the lawsuits that's being brought against Google in the US is a claim that in tying uh, Google search into Android, Google is sort of unfairly and, and un un monopolistically preventing other search engines from getting into Android and from getting a, an equivalent position. Now, we don't need to talk about whether that's a good claim or not or whether that's a reasonable claim or not. But ultimately, what that's arguing is that Google search is its own thing, but it's when Google search does something that they allege to be um, anti-competitive with relation to some other product or in terms of tying with some other product, that's where the problem arises. When we, when we look at the bills that are being put forward in the Digital Markets Act and the Senate bill uh, that you've talked about, the claim is quite different. It's that there are certain duties that any marketplace owner or that any gatekeeper has that um, are a bit, kind of almost about sort of fairness and that they're 
that they're about basically competition within the market and competition in the market rather than competition between different markets or competition for the market, you might say. And I think antitrust competition law is not very good at, at regulating that kind of thing because ultimately you're saying there is just some behavior that even if consumers want it and even if consumers benefit from it, isn't okay and isn't acceptable because it undermines you know, other businesses that use the platform. So you know, to, take a, to take an example, Amazon makes you know, own brand batteries and own brand USB cables. And I would argue that as a consumer, that's really good. Uh, I could either buy, without the Amazon basics, USB cables, I could either buy an Apple uh, lightning cable for my iPhone that costs twice as much, or I could buy a kind of no-name brand one that I don't really know very much about and that may not be reliable or may not be very good. Amazon has a very trusted username. Um, it's a brand that I can rely on, and it's much cheaper than Apple. And so typically when I buy USB cables for my iPhone, I buy them from Amazon Basics. Now, I don't think that it, you could bring a successful antitrust case to argue that Amazon in you know, hosting the platform and in maybe giving preferential treatment to its own cable and indeed maybe using data that it's collected on how consumers act within that marketplace, which is very, very controversial um, to some people. I think it'd be very hard to argue that that is bad for consumers. I think it'd be quite easy to argue that's bad for the other companies that sell USB cables on Amazon's marketplace. And so if you think that it's a priority to protect those companies, then I can totally see why you, you would think, well, competition law is not adequate for this. I, I'm glad that competition law is not adequate for this. I don't want competition law to protect competitors like that. You know, that gets us back to the old days of you know, preventing a merger because it would lower prices. That, that's to me the opposite of what competition law should do. So even though I, I disagree with the goals of um, a lot of these proposals, and I think they'd be bad ultimately, I kind of respect the clarity of thought or the, the, the clear thinking approach that says at least, you know, we're, we're, we're going to actually try to pass a law that says that you can't do this rather than to try to kind of fit this conduct that we don't like into a, into a square peg or fit, fit this square peg of conduct into a round hole. I, I, I find that much more uh, kind of annoying and, and intellectually weak. And, you know, to give another example, um, there's a lawsuit, a separate lawsuit being brought against Google um, for its behavior in the ad tech market. And there certainly are questions and there certainly are concerns that do relate to competition in and competition law and antitrust in the ad tech market and in Google's ad tech products. But a lot of the claims that are being made in this particular lawsuit, which Texas is leading a, a group of states uh, in bringing, don't really relate to competition. They relate to, it's kind of like a monopoly soup argument that, you know, it's a big company, they've got a lot of power, and isn't it a bit suspicious or sinister for them to be doing these things without any kind of claim that this is anti-competitive? And to me, that's this, that's a perversion of antitrust, and that, that's really a getting away from the purpose and, and the reason that we should have antitrust and the reason that we should try to protect competition law from that kind of approach. All right. So let's look a little bit closer at the regulatory development in both America and Europe. So we have already mentioned two uh, regulatory proposals, the Digital Markets Act in Europe and the Senate bill sponsored by Amy Klobuchar and Chuck Grassley in America. So if we would take sort of a bird's eye view on these ones, not to get into the really nitty gritty part of, of the thinking behind it, but you as a competition economist and looking at these issues over a long period of time, what would you say are the most notable parts of these regulatory proposals? 
So the really big one is, is what I've just alluded to, which is this idea of non-discrimination, that if you run a platform, you shouldn't be able to give yourself a leg up on the platform, and that there's a lot of conduct that we consider to be unfair on the platform. The term self-preferencing, and anybody who's followed the Google Shopping suit will, will be familiar with this, this is the idea that a company that has, has something like a marketplace or has a, has a powerful platform in some way can insert other services it has into that to kind of squeeze some of the monopoly power that it has from having that dominant position and benefit itself in other ways. So uh, in the Google Shopping case, the argument was that by putting shopping boxes at the top of the search results page, Google Shopping boxes at the top of the results page, it was unfairly preventing price comparison websites that just have to appear in the, in the blue links from competing. But, you know, you, the same principle would argue that, you know, when Google puts a maps result page on the search on the search engine results page, you know, if you search for a restaurant or something, that that's also uh, an example of self-preferencing. Or, you know, when Amazon or when, when Apple installs its own camera on an iPhone rather than, you know, Halide, which is another camera app um, that I use, uh, those are examples of self-preferencing. And to a, to a greater or lesser extent, these bills would curb or prohibit that kind of behavior. The exact extent to which I think is is unclear so far. I think the European approach is very prohibitive and is very, very strict about the kinds of behavior that it would prohibit and almost sort of just has red lines. It says you may not do things that look like this, whereas the current version of the US Senate bill, um, a previous version from the House, looked much more like the European approach. The current version has softened the language, but comes with a huge huge fine. Um, so it's kind of a question of do companies want to take the risk and argue that, well, you know, you, this, this language was sort of permissive and this language was sort of ambiguous. If the risk is they lose 15% of their revenues for, for having, you know, installed the wrong app uh, on an iPhone or something. And that kind of non-discrimination also includes using data that the that companies on the marketplace don't have access to. So in particular, if Amazon collects data about, you know, user behavior around the website and sees, oh, people really want to find batteries that are cheap, but they're they're clicking through and all they're seeing are Duracells and Duracells are really expensive. So we're going to offer our own batteries. That would be considered to be illegal under some of these proposals. The next really significant, separate from that kind of regulatory side, is to make it much, much, much more difficult or indeed to make it impossible for established platforms to buy smaller companies. And this is animated by the idea of a killer acquisition, which is kind of a narrow concept in its original view. The the original kind of narrow conception of a killer acquisition is where you have product, a, a rival is building a product that's like yours, that will compete with yours, and you buy it up and, and destroy their product in order to avoid your product from being competed with. That then in digital markets has been broadened slightly to kind of mean buying any competitor that could be a competitor someday and 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 later won't be. So for example, people often talk about Instagram as a killer acquisition, but it's actually, I mean, by the original definition, this is kind of pedantic. The fact that Instagram is a product that still exists and is in fact much bigger than it was when it was bought means that by, you know, it's not really a killer acquisition, but the argument is that it was the acquisition of a potential competitor or a nascent competitor. And we can, we can discuss whether uh, or how much I think people should be worried about that. And then the final point, and, and this is one that, in my opinion, the sort of more moderate people are landing on, although I think there are big, big questions, is the idea of interoperability. And interoperability is a very, very broad concept, but really it just means a product being able to work 
directly with another product from another company usually. So, you know, my screwdriver is interoperable with screws I can buy from all sorts of different companies. You know, an Android phone is interoperable with apps that you don't have to download from the Google Play Store in a way that an iPhone isn't. You have to get them from the Apple App Store from, uh, for them to work. And there's a report that's just come out called Interoperability um, the super tool uh, of, or yeah, I can't remember the exact name, but they're, they're, they're calling it the super tool. And it's written by some very, very eminent competition economists. And to be honest, it's slightly, it's a little bit like reading a kind of fantasy book because it's, if they just list all these different markets and the wonderful kind of utopia that we're going to reach, if only um, people could message from WhatsApp to uh, Signal or from WhatsApp to Slack. But, but that's based on this view that network effects are a really, really important factor. And network effects are just the idea that the more users that use a particular service, the more valuable the service is. A chat app that nobody else is using is basically useless. A chat app that everybody is using is very, very valuable. And the fear is that if a lot of people are using Instagram, or sorry, if a lot of people are using WhatsApp, say, uh, and a better chat app comes along, but nobody's using it, there's a kind of first mover disadvantage, and you may get that nobody moves over. And so we lose all of the innovation and the competition that would take place there. I think my critique of that is that, A, it's not at all clear that uh, users do find it difficult to use more than one app at a time. I mean, I, I counted up yesterday. I use eight different chat apps every day, and it's not that expensive. And, you know, I have a lot of them open on my desktop all the time, a lot of them switching between them on my phone. And so multi-homing, you know, while, while a network effect may be a cost, there is always a cost to switching. And the existence of the identification of a cost doesn't tell us very much. You have to find out how significant the cost is. And at least in my personal experience, the, the cost is not that great. But I think a more important question is, what are the costs of interoperability? And um, this is a, this is an argument that is made by the companies, but you know let's not let's not defer to them too much because they have a they have they have to declare an interest here that the security costs and the app the actual engineering costs of interoperability are really significant, and I think there might be something to that because when you look at apps that don't seem to have any kind of competition stake in not being interoperable, so Signal is a really good example. I don't know if you use it, but it's a it's a like WhatsApp, but uh, it's made by a nonprofit company. It's a very privacy-first um, service. But Signal is not interoperable with other apps. It's not interoperable with Telegram, which, again, is not a monopolist or anything like that. And so it's a question to me as to if Signal or the users of Signal have decided that interoperability is not better, is not the benefits of inter interoperability are not worth the costs to Signal, then why would we assume that WhatsApp, if WhatsApp didn't have monopoly power or market power, would have interoperability or would um, that the users of that would deem the benefits to outweigh the costs. It's, it's not a question. It's not an argument that says interoperability never works, but it is an argument to say that, you know, thinking of it as the super tool and thinking of it as this sort of magic wand is to me, maybe a little bit excitable. Indeed. Just to pick up on one of the things you mentioned here, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about potential outcomes from these regulations. So I'm curious about, these restrictions that are going to come on on acquisitions. And as you say, I mean, the underlying assumption here with a slight redefinition of what a killer acquisition is, is basically that big platforms or big tech, they have so much market power that they can, through a combination of, of acquisitions and their own competitive urge, they can step into any markets they want to step into, and they're going to drive out other competitors that 
don't have access to a platform or to a wider ecology if they do. So I think if we look at some of the cases that we've seen recently, we have um, there is a competition issue right now. I think it was both in Europe and, uh, and, and the UK, which is Facebook wanting to buy a customer service relation uh, software from Austria. We have uh, a few around health with you know Fitbits and, and and all these things where you can combine health data generated by these gadgets together with platform data, etc. But I wonder, sort of, what's the evidence here? Um, I mean, do we in the first place do we have a sort of a, a recent history suggesting that big tech is making acquisitions to kill competition? I mean, is, is that a common phenomenon in the market that they buy up small, innovative, agile firms that could eventually become a competitor just in order to kill them? What do we know about big platforms making acquisitions of smaller firms and trying to integrate them into their own ecology? Is that something which generally helps or hinders competition and finally perhaps on on that on that point you mentioned the case of instagram and facebook if i remember this correctly and you may know this far better than i do but when when facebook acquired instagram instagram wasn't a big app Uh, very few had actually heard about it and it was the skills and the market experience of facebook that helped to lift instagram to become a larger app and a more popular app. The argument here now seems to be that, all right, so this happened. So therefore, competition policy is not effective. But I wonder why Why can't sort of a competition regulator just sort of have a, a generous attitude to different sort of acquisitions? But if it turns out that they become successful in creating something, you can step in with competition policy tools later. Uh, I'm not advocating that you're going to break up Facebook for Instagram, but I, I don't see the logic of the argument that just because you aren't empowered as a competition regulator to stop an acquisition that you can't do anything at a later point. Well, there. I mean, there are so many interesting points there, and so many interesting questions. Let me try and let me try and kind of set it out how I see it, and hopefully that will touch on some of them. I think the point you made about Instagram is really vital. Instagram, um, the, the the ultimate question in the Facebook Instagram merger as to whether you think it was pro competitive or anti competitive is what you think would have happened if the merger hadn't taken place. And in one camp is the view that Instagram was destined to become this incredibly popular service that billions of people use and that Facebook basically had this um, extremely wise and and perceptive view that nobody else in the world had, including Instagram's founders and including the people who worked at Instagram and were able to snap it up for a billion dollars and, you know, basically just let it, let it roll from there. Which is the one I subscribe to is that being part of Facebook itself, and in particular, probably being part of Facebook's ad network and maybe, maybe just having Facebook's management was a huge part of Instagram's success. You know, there's a really interesting story about when uh, Snapchat burst onto Instagram's usage began to fall through the floor. And one of the things that really made Snapchat popular was, and Snapchat's still really popular, but one of the things at the time that gave it this huge advantage was stories, you know, this ability to post really temporary disappearing clips that all your followers could see. And apparently the story goes 
the decision to copy that and bring that onto the Instagram platform came from Mark Zuckerberg himself. And he just said, you must do this and you make this your number one priority. And in doing that, Instagram reversed the, the decline and held on to and probably grew a lot of its customer base. Now, you know, we should never get into the kind of worship of CEOs. We should be always be very wary of sort of hagiographies and things like that. But I think it's very plausible that that deal was, in fact, the reason that Instagram became so successful. The other point I made being just that Facebook is an amazing reach over the internet. A lot of people don't like this, but Facebook really does have an amazing way of targeting ads at people. And being able to roll that into Instagram, I think, has undoubtedly made Instagram more profitable and successful service than it would have been otherwise. But I think uh, another way of thinking about this question isn't whether particular deals have been pro or anti-competitive. It's, it's interesting, and, and certainly we need to think about that. But also, but, but also, what kind of regime do we want? So what, kind of, what, what should the rules of the game be? And are we confident that a rule or a merger control regime that prevented a Facebook Instagram, if let's just say for the sake of argument that, that it wasn't a pro-competitive deal, it was an anti-competitive deal, are we confident that one that would prevent deals like that wouldn't also prevent deals that I think are unambiguously pro-competitive? So the two that I think are really important are Google's acquisition of Android and Apple's acquisition of PA Semi. Google, of course, built Android up. It, they bought it $50 million, built it up into a really valid and, and I think pretty good um, iPhone competitor, and they did it really quickly. The iPhone may have been monopolistic, truly kind of monopolistic, given how good it was, uh, for a lot longer than it was um, had Google not been able to bring on the talents of the, the Android team and to, to build it up. I also think there are interesting points about whether the Android business model would have been viable at all if it didn't have this way of basically building the Google search engine into Android and, and allowing Google to profit from basically an open source operating system. But that's a, a discussion for another day. Apple, I think, is even more successful. You know, Apple bought PA Semi in 2008. It spent $278 million on it. And Apple in about 13 years, in, I mean, it took less than that, but Apple today produces better semiconductors than Intel does. And, you know, went from basically nothing to massively disrupting the semiconductor market and producing some absolutely staggeringly good CPUs. Now, the question to me isn't just whether Facebook, Instagram was competitive, was anti-competitive or not. It's, are we confident that a stricter regime that prevented Facebook, Instagram wouldn't also have prevented Facebook, Google Android or Apple PA Semi? And if the answer is no, then I'm not sure that the, that the benefits of, of Instagram being independent or whatever the future benefits of that kind of regime are greater than the costs of losing those kind of, I think, unambiguously pro-competitive mergers and unambiguously pro-innovation mergers. A, a final point, and I think this is worth remembering, is that there's a big, big question about, you know, what actually competes with what. Facebook and Instagram do indeed have quite similar, but quite different in other ways, products. I think it's very, very reasonable to argue that Facebook and Instagram are de facto competitors. And therefore, you know, I, would, I probably wouldn't allow Facebook to buy Instagram today if Instagram was what it is today. But on the basis that Facebook and Instagram are competitors with different but, but somewhat similar products, then surely we must also think that other different but still quite similar products like Twitch, YouTube, TikTok, Discord, Slack, whatever, Snapchat, surely we must think that all those things are also competitors of Facebook's. 
you know, either Instagram is a competitor of Facebook's or, and, and all of those other services are, or none of them are. And, and I think it's pretty hard to have our cake and eat it and say, Facebook and Instagram are competitors, but Facebook and YouTube aren't competitors. Because if they are competitors, then we should be much less concerned about Facebook's kind of supposed dominance of this market, because actually the market is much, much, much bigger than we think. No, indeed, that's, that's, that's a very good point. So let's talk a little bit about expected outcomes so what do you think, Sam, is what are the likely outcomes of these new regulations that are being proposed right now, or from more government activism, more generally in competition policy? The, the underlying assumption seems to be that a reduction of big tech market power and stronger controls of its market behavior will unleash more competition and more innovation, and perhaps also better diffusion of technology in the economy, driving up productivity. There are also those who make the case that there will be direct benefits for consumers, um, like, for instance, big tech not being able to use its scale and network effect advantages as much as they can do today. So do you think this is a likely development? Well, I think it's worth asking the proponents of these things. And obviously, I'm going to speak for them. But, um, you know, what do you think the best outcomes are here? So I think in the first degree, in the first order, very few would argue that, you know, consumers really like choice screens or, you know, consumers really value the ability to choose between Amazon delivery or UPS delivery when they're buying something on Amazon Marketplace. So you have to come to a kind of second order claim, which is that, as you said, innovation will increase because you'll have much more competition on these markets. But this is quite a faith-based argument. They're, the actual empirical evidence that um, market structure different forms of market structure lead to different levels of innovation is really, really mixed. And, and I think so mixed as to say that we just can't draw strong conclusions one way or another. You know, the, the most kind of heralded nowadays work is Agion's uh, work on the inverted U-curve. And what I take from that is not that there's a particular sweet spot that we're trying to get every market towards in terms of, you know, how many competitors there are and, and how big they should be, but to say that it's different for every market. And there's no single conclusion we can draw, either to say that in markets, you know, having one big player is going to be the most innovative. And, and there are, you know, there are cases where that does seem to be the case. And that's obviously the Schubertarian argument, or that in every market, we want to have as many competitors as possible. I just think that it's really, really faith-based to try to claim that there's a straightforward relationship from market structure to innovation or something like that. The way I look at platforms is as tools for bringing order to the chaos of the internet. Now, I, I love the open web. I'm a huge, I mean, I've been an open web user for my entire life, but there's no doubt that the open web is a dangerous and scary and a daunting place. And the, the chaos on the open web and the chaos on the web makes it very difficult for people who aren't kind of tech nerds to navigate and to, to navigate safely. And by safely, I mean, you know, by not downloading malware or by not getting ripped off or being defrauded or, or whatever it might be. And one of the huge virtues of platforms is that they bring order to that chaos and they indiscriminating, in you know, to, to use the term. I, I mean, I think it's a, I don't like the term discriminating in this context, but in, in, not being neutral, platforms help users by, by filtering out things that are not high quality or by filtering out search results that are, that are potentially harmful or by, you know, providing a really straightforward way of phoning a restaurant. If you just Googled, you know, Nigerian restaurant near me, I, I believe I know the restaurant it will bring up. It's a great restaurant and I believe it will give me a button that will allow me to phone that restaurant up and, and book right now. 
And that's really helpful. And that, that brings a huge amount of simplicity and convenience to what is otherwise a, a kind of overabundance of choice and information. And, you know, all of us acknowledge that some degree of that is necessary. You know, we all have spam filters on our email address, or on our email account, and we would be worse off if we didn't have that filtering mechanism. And I think that really the value that platforms bring isn't just in creating a random market, because I think eBay is, is different to Amazon. And I personally prefer the Amazon approach, which is much more interventionist and much more basically central planning. You know, Amazon central plans its marketplace much more than eBay does. But I think there are lots of benefits to that. And as long as I can choose between different degrees of central planning and different degrees of um, you know, regulation, if we want to call it that, I think that's a good thing. And so I think the consequence of this I'm unconvinced by the arguments that these will increase innovation. I, I think there's very, very little evidence for that. And I think the consequence of these things will be to turn Amazon into a much more eBay-like platform and to turn Google into what it was 15 or 20 years ago when it was really just 10 blue links and to d- degrade the quality of those services and their ability to kind of bring order to the chaos of the internet. And the final thing that I worry about is this point that Nicolas Petit has made. and uh, He's a scholar at um, EUI in Florence. And he argues that the real competitors of big tech are other big tech companies. And the way they compete is in extending into other markets. So, so this behavior that, was, that we already talked about as being kind of sinister and sort of nefarious and, and you know, a way of these companies squeezing their monopoly uh, for, for even more profit he sees as them growing in and, and almost the profits and the rents that you know Amazon is making in retail, Google can't resist moving into that. And, and you know, the market is in fact doing exactly what we wanted to. And those rents and those monopoly profits are an irresistible draw to these other companies like Facebook setting up its own marketplace. It's a very different kind of marketplace, but you still use it to buy things and you still use it to, to shop online or Google with, with shopping. And I, and I fear that a lot of the things we've talked about, preventing mergers, which often allow you to move into a new market more rapidly, uh, preventing self-preferencing, which allow you to prioritize and uh, to prioritize the service you've got um, to the users of your core service. I fear that a lot of the uh, restrictions on those things will undermine the ability of those companies to move into each other's markets and, and erode the profits and erode the, the positions those companies have in those markets. And so, you know, as we talked about, this tension between or this divide between competition and competition law on one side and regulation on the other, it might not just be that regulation is a better tool for achieving those goals that they want. It might also be that regulation contradicts the goals of competition policy, and these regulations undermine competition. And if that's the case, then we might get the worst of all worlds where we don't get really many of the innovative benefits because that's not really how it works. We don't really get better platforms, they're, they're worse, and they're more deeply entrenched in the markets they're in because Apple can't build its own search engine to rival Google anymore. Because if it did, and if it put that on the iPhone, that would be self-preferencing, and that's no longer something that's allowed. And if that's the case, we should be very, very worried about the effects of these approaches. So you're talking now about one, one potential effect, which I think is, is interesting, which is basically about reducing the quality of the service, um, that this may be one of the, not intended, but an un- unintended consequence of, of these regulations. So we can 
I mean, take examples of um, as you used. If you if you if you if you come to Brussels and you want to dine at a certain type of restaurant, you go into Google and you search for it, and you want to know where it is, but Google can't show you the map in it, so you're not really sure where it is and how to get there. Um, you're not really sure about what other customers think about it because if they take reviews that comes from other customers, they're going to use another data set, which they may not be allowed to combine into their core platform service, which is which is search. Another potential effect, which you also alluded to, and this is something I have been thinking about as I've been trying to get a better feeling for what the Digital Markets Act will actually achieve. I mean, there are some problems with it in, in the sense that when you read it, uh, it's very difficult to understand what they actually mean. So what, what is going to happen on day one, day two, day three, after the DMA has gone gone into effect? What are companies going to be allowed to do and what they're not going to be allowed to do? But if you, if you sort of take the logic of the regulation, you think sort of about market fairness, contestability that they're talking about in the regulation, I cannot see how we not are going to move into a development where we are going to restrict different type of competitive behaviors on one platform when it's not part of their core platform service. And the beneficiary of that action is going to be another big platform which offer that core platform service so that the effect of the regulation itself may be that we're going to entrench the market power of the core platform services and their operator so I'm, I'm putting this to you, Sam, to help me to navigate this this DMA and what you what you think about that proposition. But is it? Do you think it's it's it, is that just sort of a an unevidenced suspicion, or do you think there's something into it? I mean, I, I think there's a I think there's a lot to it, and you know, it's worth remembering that almost every economist on earth agrees that typically regulation stifles innovation, and typically regulation stifles competition, and that where you need to regulate, it's because um, really all other options have failed, or because you have, you know, uncaptured externalities and things like that. It's, it's interesting, and I think a little bit depressing, that regulation seems to have been the kind of first port of call for a lot of people in terms of their approach to digital markets. You know, even in the UK, they call it pro-competition interventions or, you know, a pro-competition regulatory regime, which is, you know, like saying my square ball or something like that. It's, it's kind of a, it's almost like you're asking somebody to, to believe something that, that just, that just doesn't happen. And, um, you know, even if we, even if we just discard uh, traditional theories of regulatory capture, the, the idea that, you know, you have a revolving door between the companies that are being regulated and the companies that are regulating what I'm more concerned about is regulatory bias and a kind of this what I what I perceive as being this common agreement among many competition economists who are who are really you know at the coalface of these debates and regulators that we really have to do this we really have to do something and the lack of debate that's taken place because everything you've talked about seems to me to be exactly what we should be worried about. It's never the case that when um, markets are kind of unambiguously competitive, that consumers want platforms to be super neutral. You know, we, we, eBay is a much more neutral platform than Amazon, and Amazon beat it. You know, Amazon's just, a, I think, it has many, many strengths compared to eBay. I use eBay for some things, but I use Amazon for most things. And I think most consumers would look at you like you had two heads if you said, okay, well, we're really going to help you out. We're going to make Amazon a lot more like eBay. But that's exactly what the DMA does. 
And I think the fact that um, regulators and people proposing this seem to kind of collectively agree that this is the thing that we have to do and think that there's a super tool of interoperability. And all we need to do is to apply the super tool that, that has no costs and has no risks and has no downsides. You know, in that report, I was just reading it yesterday, the first risk they listed was that we wouldn't do this fast enough. And I just thought that was astounding, that, that there's so little um, dissent among kind of elite competition policy circles. And, you know, regulators have a really big incentive to be first. Regulator, you know, the, the UK Competition Authority prides itself on being, you know, a leading regulator and on setting the agenda for everybody else. And I can understand why that matters to them, but I don't really understand why that matters to me as a consumer in the UK. Uh, if anything, I would want the UK to be last so that we can learn from the approaches that other countries have taken and, you know, pick what works rather than be the, you know, guinea pig for these kinds of things. And so I completely agree. And I think it's a really deep concern. You know, this question of if Apple wanted to build a search engine, would it be able to, and would it be easier for it to do so in this new regime compared to in the current regime? And I, I think the answer is a pretty resounding no. And I, and I think this deeper question of why is it so difficult to find people who are highly, highly prominent, highly um, involved in these debates? Why, why does there seem to be so much unanimity in policymaking circles in Brussels and in the UK and in the US, really? Um, about these questions. And, and to me, that's a sign that maybe there's a sort of collective bias here. And, and maybe it's not that we've just had all these debates and, and, you know, we've arrived at some kind of lovely consensus through um, this process. But actually, there are, there are other biases and that there are other priorities and um, people have sort of lost sight of the real goal, which to me should be as much innovation as possible in order to make people's lives as better as possible. All right, Sam, I think that's going to be uh, a very good ending to our conversation to deliver as much innovation as possible. That's that's what we want to do, right? Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, Sam. I am a big admirer of the work that you do and uh, your colleagues at the ICLE. And well, I, I hope to be able to chat to you again in the future. Mm-hmm.